Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Also in long-term recovery. Hey, everybody. Hey, and uh, we're here this week to uh, do our podcast. I'm going to start off talking recently about a book I've been listening to. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's about addiction and uh, a doctor, medical doctor. His name's Gabor Mate, and he's a doctor in the Portland Housing Authority, uh, works for the Portland Housing Authority up in Vancouver and deals with addicts and mentally ill and uh, the books about his journey through there. But one of the things that I found uh, most interesting about the book that he was talking about um, was that addiction is not connected to genetics like we used to think that it was. Um, I still remember back in the 90s, you know, when we heard, oh, we found the alcohol gene and everybody Mm -hmm. who has this gene is an alcoholic and we know and, you know, it's going to be the lead to medications and things that can cure alcoholism and you know i still remember hearing that and actually carrying that belief through that this is a lot of addiction is genetics and according to him a lot of the modern science says that's not really so true that Hmm. people are more and he said actually the people that made that original prediction came out and said that later on it wasn't they weren't trying to mislead anybody they thought they had found this thing but they've come to find out later with more genetic studies that oh we weren't quite right on that and so what we've this is going to get a little off addiction but what we've learned with genetics in the last couple of years is what they call epigenetics which is how environment affects your genetics So for a long time, we thought, oh, if you have this gene, you'll have blue eyes. If you have this gene, you'll have brown hair. If you have this gene, you'll have this. And what they're figuring out now is that's not necessarily true, that you have two or three different genes in your genome, and that if two are on and one is off, you'll have brown hair. But if one is on and two are off, you might have blonde hair, and that You know, you can't isolate it to just one gene that does this or that. Right. And that what determines whether these genes are flipped on or off a lot of times are environmental factors. Yeah, it's uh, very much so. You know, if these 17 places are flipped to the right spot when the moon is shining on the third Sunday of the month, uh, this is what will end up coming from it. But I, I am a little surprised. I... So I just recently had a class that's about addiction, uh, and they're still selling the, the research that, you know, if one of your parents is an addict, there's a one in eight chance that you will be. And if both of your parents are addicts, there's a one in four chance that you will be, regardless of any other circumstances. Like, that's just the genetic portion that's passed on. So I, I'm kind of surprised that that 
might not be the truth anymore since they're still teaching that in the colleges. Yeah, and he claims, and I didn't get the name of it or didn't write it down, but that there's actually been like an article in the Times. It actually was the headlines of a Times article where it said that this, you know, epigenetics had way more to do with, you know, addiction and these things than actual genetics do. I'd have to look into the study because so the study they're basing uh, the one in four and the one in eight ratios on is people who were had addicts as parents but these were kids who were given up for adoption at birth and then raised somewhere else by different parents right so they were saying that these children who did not have the environment of being raised by the addict right they weren't giving the nurture portion of addiction and that's why they turned out to to still have addiction they were raised by somebody else they just had the genetic relationship that's how they based the the one in eight and the one in four numbers um, because they were still turning out to be addicts, even raised completely separate of the addiction environment. And he does address some of that okay. in, in the book. He talks about it being more in utero type stresses, mm-hmm. that these in utero type stresses and these stress hormones get passed on, you know, to the baby. Right. And the way he described like the I love visuals where he talks about it as a seed. If you take, you know, a seed that's healthy genetically and then put it into a shitty environment, you're going to end up with a weak or sick or deteriorated plant. Hmm. And that not, you know, obviously people have genetic disorders and different genetic issues. He's not claiming that everybody's genetic. But what he claims is addiction in and of itself is not genetic. That's a really interesting analogy. I like that. Yeah, I liked it too, because, you know, and, and in utero stuff, he gives, he cites some research and some, you know, I didn't dig deep into his research, but he does cite some research and some evidence based on uh, issues that they had with, and this wasn't to do with addiction, where they started to realize some of this was uh, Jewish parents that had children during the Holocaust and issues that they had with the babies, you know, mm. because they were grown up in these, you know, sort of with loving parents, but they had the in utero stresses right. of, you know, being in the Holocaust <laughs> right, right. and being living in poverty and their parents are being separated and those sorts of stresses. There's a growing belief in the in the mental health field that we look at like childhood trauma and, you know, we talked about ACE before on here, adverse childhood experiences. And we've always believed that that could cause issues in the here and now, the PTSD and, and many other things. But what we're realizing more and more now is that these things can happen like you're talking about in utero or even up to like pre memory age before two, before three, before we ever have the idea of what possibly went on. And so we're running around saying we're messed up and we don't know why. And it's stuff that happened before we could possibly know what's going on. So it's really hard to defend ourselves against things that happen, you know, like you said, before you're even born, but we're still picking up these later on effects, negative outcomes of the things that happened then. Right. And where this, I mean, to me, where this becomes important is that if we can get sort of a, a wider view of addiction, Uh, out into the general public, the general community. I mean, obviously, you know, to me, it seems like most quote unquote normal people, you know, look at addicts or people struggling with mental health and look at it as like a weakness 
or a moral issue right. or, you know, they're just not trying hard enough, you know, right. they're not taking responsibility. And I think if you can sort of begin to get people to think like, no, these were like damaged, you know, these were kids or children or babies that were damaged early on with a, with a weakened, I hate to use the word weakened, with a lesser opportunities. And so it, you know, made the potential for them to be addicts so much higher. Like, Right, right. So it's interesting. I was just having this conversation on Twitter with some people uh, in a similar manner that the research. OK, so there's a lot of research and research can almost prove anything you wanted to prove. And I get that. Right. But there is some research that shows that a large portion of the people that believe that they had really strong willpower when measured against other people who thought maybe they didn't have such strong willpower what the outcome of that study showed was that the people who believed they had really strong and great willpower were just tempted much less often. Right. (laughs) And so it was, to me, it was like, Oh man, what more human thing than to take credit for something we really aren't doing. Right. Um, But it, it's one of those things to where, even though we have that kind of research and we can find that sort of stuff out, people still don't believe it. Right. Right. There's still plenty of people running around talking about how great their willpower is and how they came from nothing, even though they had (laughs) two million dollars given to them on their 18th birthday. And they self-made people. And like I just we are such a society that does not want to go with the belief that people need help and not all of us are given the same advantage at birth or whatever it is. Like, I just can't fathom why, even though we can prove this with science. People just don't seem to want to believe it. We want to hold those old beliefs of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just make it work. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's hard to overcome because I think most of us, I mean, even, you know, myself, I'm in recovery. I have a pretty good life, but life is challenging and it's hard and it's difficult at times. And I got to push through hard obstacles and, and overcome whatever, you know, whatever the flavor of the day to be angry about now it seems to be politics and taxes and you know all those kind of things that we can get angry about and you know it's like if we feel like someone else is getting a handout or an advantage Mm. or or some easier softer way it like makes us angry you know it's it's weird and i think that more has to do with we just currently live in a society and environment where life isn't fucking easy you know Mm. we're we don't work together as a community to solve problems most of the time you know we're we're sort of everybody gets put on their own island and you got to fend for yourself and it's up to you to provide for yourself and your family and everything else and you know if we lived in a more i mean communal type structure where we all kind of looked out for each other and helped each other out and when we were down we got a handout when this guy's down they get a handout like those kind of mentalities i think would help people more um which Funny enough, and just tying this back into something we were talking about earlier, I think that's one of the things that motivates me to want to go out and do free work Mm. for people in the community. It's like (laughs) I have this ability to help and it really isn't costing me a whole lot, you know, a little bit of time, a little bit of energy. I don't mind doing it. It's not a big out of the way thing, but I have an opportunity to help somebody that doesn't get me anything in particular ahead or anything, um, but I can. So I do. You know, it's you got to stop making us sound like socialists here, Billy. I think the government's going to step in and and tell us we're not living democratically or something. I I don't know what they do, but we'll be labeled. Uh oh. Well, I don't think it's the government's job to do any of that. I think people should just do it on their own. I don't think we need the government to make laws to force us to do it. That's 
that's where it becomes an issue. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I, I don't know. You're going back to, I don't know what can make people see the need for others to need help. Like if, I guess if you live your life and don't ever feel like you need to reach out for help, then you're never going to understand why anybody else ever had to reach out for help. And I don't know if that's, you truly have never had to reach out for help in your life, or you're just unable to see all the times you've really needed to reach out for help. I have a hard time believing that there's somebody who lived that really never needed anyone else's help like that. Maybe it's true. It's definitely not my experience, I, but may, maybe they're just blind to all the times they've been helped. Yeah, well, there's different levels of help. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's, there's the help of, Hey, I am moving to a new house. Can you come help me this weekend? Help me move. Right. Or, you know, I'm building a deck. Will you come help me build a deck? Or, you know, I need to get my kids to soccer practice. Would you mind coming picking up the kids at soccer practice? Like those are common things that people need help with that, Usually in society, you don't like that's not out of the realm of norm to ask for those kind of things. But if I were to come to you and say, hey, will you pay my rent for a year because I can't hold a job because I'm mentally ill? <laughs> or, right. hey, can you come uh, manage my medications for me because of my mental health issues? I'm not able to do those things. Or, you know, hey, will you come sit with me because I really want to get high today and I don't know how not to. So, you know, people won't ask for help in those ways. You know, uh, that would seem way more extreme help. <laughs> well, and I'm just like, okay, so the guy who thinks that everybody should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which is such an old saying, nobody has bootstraps anymore. Yeah, right. We need to like fix this, right? Like pull yourself up by your Nikes or something. Um, has he never, has he, does he not see that like, he says, oh, I've done this all myself. Does he not see that, okay, maybe his family didn't have money when they were younger, but his best friend, his best friend's dad maybe happened to be in the union. And so he had a recommendation and now he got into the union and made a good living for himself. But does he not see that he got helped to get in there? And had he been, uh, I don't know, a person of color or a woman, he'd have never got that recommendation from his friend's dad. Like, I, I don't know. I just think we, we really missed the boat that we have advantages and we don't know how to acknowledge or see that we've had advantages. And so we just point the finger and wonder why everyone can't do what we did. Right. right. And they're not given the same opportunity. Right. This week. Right. Right. I, it really bothers me. I, so for me uh, this week, you know, and I'm sure there would be plenty of people that would tell you uh, I am weak or not pulling myself up or just not following through. But I, I've been depressed. Right. I know this is the season uh, or time of year for me to go through that a little rougher than normal. Um, I'm really into Christmas. I love the Thanksgiving spend time with family and then the Christmas shopping season and just thinking about my family frequently and what they'll appreciate. And that whole thing is just a really loving time of year for me. Right. And then after everybody goes back to school and work, it's just a, it's like a funk. It's like, ah, now I'm just all alone and, and, and I feel maybe tied to some stuff from my childhood, some like abandonment stuff when they go back to school and work. And I'm just kind of like, now I'm just here by myself with nobody to talk to and isolated and I don't know what to do. And my normal reaction uh, when I feel those kind of things is to just, okay, I'll get my sons on the bus and I'm going back to bed. Like right? I'm just, I just cannot face the world right this minute. And uh, 
that's what happened last Monday, right? And it was a few hours where I laid in bed. And look, I'm not even tired. I already had like seven and a half hours the night before. I know it's not a, a tired thing. Um, and I'm laying there in and out of napping or, or sleeping or, or escaping life. And like the thought hits me here and there, like uh, maybe your kids would be all right without you. Like this life thing's just tough, man. Maybe you just don't need it, right? And, and it's a scary ass thought. I don't want to feel like I'm that close to the edge. And and I don't, I don't think I'm going to act on it or anything, but it's like, just to even have that thought is so scary to me. It's like, why do I have to live on this like edge of a cliff at all times, wondering what dumbass thought is going to come my way about what I shouldn't be alive or something like that. And, uh, and so it's gotten just slightly better every day since then. Right. Um, it, it was really hard to get out of bed Monday, Tuesday. It was still pretty hard. Wednesday, it was a little less hard. And like every day it's gotten a little better. Even today, this morning, like I, I love coming here and doing this. It was still a little tough to get up. Right. I snoozed my alarm a couple times, which I usually don't. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess somebody would tell me that's weak and I should just get the fuck up and live life and all that. And that sounds great until I'm in the middle of some depressive symptoms and I just don't feel capable. And I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that all the time. I'm pumping all this positive uh, recovery and mental health stuff into my life. I'm listening to some positive audio books. I'm practicing all these positive things. I'm trying to pray and meditate more. And it's like, I don't have a fucking answer all the time for, for what, how to fix me. Right. Sometimes I just, this is where I'm at. Yeah. And that's so, I understand that to be, if I have this right, the difference between like clinical depression and then people that just get depressed because bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally have never been diagnosed with depression as a mental illness, but I have family members and people that I'm very close to that have. And so I've done a little research, you know, my own kind of research on signs and symptoms to look for and what can I do to support that person through that, you know, because, um, to be honest, I just, that doesn't happen to me. Like I have days or moments where I'm like, fuck this, I'm fucking getting out of here and fucking killing myself. I don't care, but it's really just passes, you know, usually it's cause I'm really upset about something for a 10 minute moment and it never lasts long. Um, and like depression, like I, I've been, sick i think maybe you made me sick or my wife made me sick i don't know somebody made me sick so this whole week you know i've had the same kind of ailment head cold thing and so you know i felt myself the other day getting sort of all self-pity you Mm. know angry i'm mad at my wife over fucking spending money and you know just all this stuff that i don't normally do but it you know i i recognize like i know what it is like look you're just sick you're just in a negative frame of mind just you know take it easy on yourself, go to bed, you'll feel better tomorrow. And for me, it's always been that way. Like if I just go to bed, I'll feel better tomorrow. But for people that struggle with, you know, clinical depression, like from what I read and understand, like that's not the case. Like everything can be fine and you could still go into these depressive funks. There's not always reasons that you get depressed like that. So trying to like search out a reason and then counter that reason doesn't really matter because that's not the cause of the problem in the first place (laughs) right right um so you know for me like you know in in my relationships with people what i've tried to do so um 
trying to tread lightly here because I don't know what I'm allowed to say and not say, and I don't want to <laughs> throw anybody's names or anything out there. So one of the things that I know I can do is um, just kind of touch base with that person. Hey, how you doing? How you feeling today? Want to go get something to eat? You know, you want to go out? Maybe we'll go hit a meeting, you know, spend time with them, hang out, try to not let them sulk like you're talking about like spend that time down that isn't necessarily good for them even though that's what they want to do that's not a good place for them to be that is such (laughs) a hard thing to do to know that activity is part of the solution or can be part of the solution and just feel incapable of doing it it's one of those things like i'm sitting here listening to you and i'm amazed because i think it's people similar to you that have never had that struggle that fail to see that others might, right? It's that whole self-centered, everyone else is obviously just like me. Um, And so since I've never struggled with depression, well, I don't know, you're just fucking lazy, (laughs) right? right? And so I'm impressed that even though you've never felt it, you have the ability to at least understand that other people feel differently than you and go through these things. Yeah, well, it's it's helped in my relationships in my life, Mm. you know, because there was times where I felt exactly like that. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why have right. you been laying in bed for three fucking days? This is ridiculous, you mm. know? Um, I guess I can say it. I don't know. She'll be mad at me later. It's my wife, you know? She's <laughs> dealt with it. And over our marriage, like, we've had issues. Like, we have kids. We have shit to do. Why are you laying in bed all day? Like, you got to get up. You got to right. get And that was my attitude at different times in our marriage and in our relationship. Um, and one of the most extreme times, like, she had a couple days of like just laying in bed and I went in one day and she was just crying mm. and she's like, I don't know why I, you know, I don't know why I feel like this. I just, I want to kill myself. You know, everything in her life was, you know, as good as it's, she's like, my life is better than it's ever been. And, you know, and it really pushed me to be like, wow, this isn't, you know, this is different than anything that I have ever been through you know i have what i would call like normal depression like yeah i you know whatever got arrested again and i might have to go to jail so i'm pretty sad about that and i feel like shit well that's normal if you do those things you should be depressed you know when i and someone explained this to me early in recovery like when i first came into recovery i was pretty you know down and depressed well i should have been my life was a fucking wreck and i was a piece of crap and that's a that's like a healthy depression, like a healthy sign of like, hey, things aren't going well. You need to be doing something different. You know, you maybe you need to change what you're doing if you want to feel better about your life. But Just to clarify, I don't agree with shooting all over yourself. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> but that's completely different than, right. you know, a clinical depression or someone struggles with this thing of depression. And, you know, it's almost to throw it out there. It's like addiction or recovery. Like we hear these words and we tend to just develop whatever we think our own definition of that word is. And that becomes the way we apply it to everyone else in the world. And depression is different for other people. You know, what I go through when I'm depressed is completely different than what, you know, my wife struggles with when she's depressed. Right. There are some common uh, signs and symptoms, you know, uh, to be diagnosed as depressed. And and those would be and, and you're not diagnosed as just depressed. There's major depressive disorder. There's a whole lot of other different right, levels, uh, right? Disorders that go along with different time frames or different intensities of, of what you might go through. Um, it, just to, 
you know, break in here a little bit for possible people who might think that they identify with this. Um, if you're feeling depressed, one thing to do, you can talk to your primary care physician. Uh, you can go see a mental health specialist. Um, or even at home, if you want to do a, a, a search, I almost said a Google search. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to advocate for them. They have enough advertisement. Uh, but if you want to do a search for it's called PHQ nine, which is a so they made this personal health questionnaire, which includes a whole lot of different stuff. And they took the nine questions out of it that have to do with depression and put them together. And it's called a PHQ nine and it's free and you can find it all over the place. It doesn't cost anything to get it. It doesn't cost anything to get the scoring mechanism from it like unfortunately some inventories of depression do um and you can take that at home by yourself and it's really simple it's really basic but you can score it and get an idea of where you are on the depression scale and if you might need to uh look into that further with professionals yeah and there's you know the the national suicide hotline i know is gets a lot of you know, promotion now as it should, yes. as we see suicides, you know, increase, um, you know, there are people out there that want to help, you know, there are people out there that want, you know, to be available to support people when they're going through these struggles. I think so. A lot of times when we talk about depression and <clears throat> possibly diagnosing it, we talk about more the change from your norm, right? It's not so much what behaviors do you have. If you sleep 12 hours a day, but you've always slept 12 hours a day, that might be your norm. That might be okay, right? It's more about, hey, do you remember a time when you felt different? And what's different today from then? Do you eat more or less? Do you sleep more or less? Like, what are these changes in your behavior? Um, a lot of time, <clears throat> excuse me, it could be accompanied with uh, just a different feeling about your life, right? Like, and it might be sadness or it might be no feeling. It might be losing joy in things that used to bring you joy. You might not find any more joy in, you know, activities you used to love. You used to love golfing and now you just don't find any joy in it. That can definitely be a good sign of depression. Not a good sign, but a positive yeah. sign of it. Um, and I think one of the things that's the biggest struggle and the scariest part of depression is that it doesn't just feel like now. Like depression almost spans time. It, it makes you feel like your past and your future also Have were terrible, right? Yeah. It's always been terrible in the past and it will never get better in the future. It's not just a present feeling disorder. And I think that's one of the scariest parts because hmm. you do feel stuck and like it'll never get better. It's a hopeless disorder. Yeah. And, you know, as a person trying to support someone going through that, I think sometimes you know, just talking to them in a, in a supportive way, trying to tell them that, you know, you love them, that you care about them, that they can get through this, that you're there to help them get through it, that it's okay that they feel that way instead of trying, like, you know, in my case, I try not to, you know, belittle or punish or mm -hmm. make it feel like a, like there's something wrong with her, you know what I mean? Like, right. it's like, Hey, you know, I'm here, I can help you, you know, we can get through this together. Um, you know, I'm sorry that you feel this way. Like acknowledging those feelings, like, yeah, I understand you feel this way. And that's, it's okay that you feel this way. Um, but what do we, you know, let's, let's try to get through it together. Yeah. I think you touched on a couple of really important pieces of that. Um, definitely. Uh, it's really important for anything we feel, even though we like to judge them as good or bad or, or indifferent to recognize what we're feeling or what somebody close to us is feeling 
and allow that feeling to just be right. Like there's, there's no wrong feeling, right? There can be some feelings that maybe aren't based in reality, but that doesn't make them wrong. Like we still feel them very real, uh, whether they're true or not. And so I think it's really important to let people know that it's okay or let ourselves know it's just okay to feel whatever we are feeling. And another critical point that I think you said was sitting with them is always let people know they're not alone. Yeah. Right. Because that's what isolation is, is deadly for us, man. We are a communal species. And, and when we're not feeling at our best, isolation is, is dangerous and deadly for us. And it's good to know that we're not alone in dealing with anything like that. Somebody's there. It might not fix the problem right that second. It might right. not. It'll be comforting, if nothing else. Right. To just not be alone. Which for me, as the supporter of someone in depression at times like that is a that is a hard thing like in my life most of the time like I just do this and that's a solution to the problem and then I do that and that's a solution to the problem and so you know it's like I you know with my wife I might want to go in that one time and be like hey you know it's okay I'm here for you what do you need right you know we can get through this you know, and then when it goes into day two or day three, I'm like, well, I did what I was supposed to do. Why are you not better? Right, get the fuck up. You're supposed to be better now. And, um. and yeah, no, so I, I'm buying in. So my, my wife doesn't deal with depression, uh, but it is easy for me to judge and berate people that are close to me when they're not living up to what I hope they do. Right. Um, whether that's a mental health issue they're struggling with or not, it doesn't even matter. It's just the fact that like, it's so hard to let other people be human. Um, when we have expectations of them doing more. And really for me, I think I personally, I look back at it and say, it has just a lot to do with the fact that when somebody else doesn't live up to the expectations I have for them, I feel like I pay the penalty for it because they're close to my life and, and it involves more work for me or, or more pain for me in some way. And so I just take it personal every time. And really, I need to like get over that somehow and not look at it that way. Um, we are coming up on time to take a break for ad. Any real quick stuff you want to add before that? Um, no, but if you notice, uh, I'll just say if you have a loved one or a family member that you think is depressed, just try to talk to them about it. Hey, how you feeling? What's going on? Are you okay? You know, is there something I can do for you? And uh, try to keep that emotional communication open as best you can. All right. Excellent advice. Uh, we'll take a break for that. We'll be right back. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. All right, we're back from that. Uh, just to <clears throat> not not to finish up any conversation about depression, because really that could tie into everything we ever talk about. As long as I'm involved, I know that. Uh, but I, you had mentioned some. Uh, you know, we talked about some things you can do looking up the, the PHQ-9 inventory for depression to kind of find out more about it. And we talked about being with someone uh, if you find that they're close to you and they might be struggling with something along these lines and any mental health issue, too. We just happen to be talking about depression today. Um, but you have another, I think, good suggestion for maybe someone who, 
who does struggle with depression from time to time and knows that how to kind of monitor themselves a little bit with help. Yeah. If you know you have a history of a mental health issue or you're in a relationship with somebody that you know has a history of a mental health issue, it's always a good idea to kind of lay out what the warning signs are of when you need to reach out for professional help to have like a plan of like, Hey, if this, this, and this happens, we really need to go to a psychiatrist or a medical doctor and seek, you know, help outside of our normal, just trying to get through it together. Um, I think that plan is critical in uh, helping with mental illness. Yeah. And I think one of the crucial parts you, you mentioned here is including other people in this plan. And, and that's, so critical for this kind of thing because with mental health issues we only have our own input and that's twisted that's kind of the problem right it's the problem in our minds that our thinking is not going the way it's supposed to maybe or 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 whatever it's not going the way it normally does for us and like in our case i know it's you know with my wife it's myself her her sponsor you know people that she's closest with um whether it's family members a sponsor if you're in recovery or close friends if you're in recovery or a spouse or, you know, just somebody that you're really close to being open about those things. Yeah, for, for me included, uh, my wife definitely knows all about my, you know, mental health history and, and what signs and symptoms might show themselves uh, or what kind of things might come out of my mouth when things aren't <laughs> going so well. Yeah. Um, and I think my sponsor is slowly learning a little bit more about that. And I have a a good friend from uh, the area I used to live in that that's pretty aware. And I try to keep up to date on where my mental health status is at any point in time, because I don't trust my own opinion. You know, I know when things go South, my opinion is bad. Right. And I can't see that. Um, So a a lot of times when I, you know, lead a meeting or, or do a share at a meeting, depending on what area you're from and what you call that, I tend to point out that I don't think I started using because I was skipping down the street with a, you know, Pac-Man lunchbox and and life was great. Uh, I believe there were some issues going on before I started using and my using, you know, I I know early on when people said, Hey, you're just self-medicating. That sounded like a good fucking excuse. Right. (laughs) So I latched onto that. I'm like, hell yeah, I self-medicate. I got problems. Um, But I really look at it and I, I do believe that's part of my using, you know, whether that was, drugs or alcohol, I was trying to cover up or patch over the way I felt. And those things seem to help to some extent. Um, And so I look at that now and I say, well, maybe depression was there first, right? Maybe that existed before the drugs, before the alcohol. And those were parts of the reasons that I started to use. I know my father, you know, talking about, uh, you know, genetics, my father struggled with some really nasty depression at times in his life. Um, so it wouldn't be a far stretch that I would feel some similar things if that's genetic Though we, of course, you know, from our conversation earlier, we really don't know exactly. Um, but I, I look at that and I say like, so we get clean, we get sober, we start to deal with some of these effects again. Maybe we have that pink cloud time where it feels good for a minute. Maybe we don't. Some other people go through the part of their brain that doesn't produce the endorphins or the dopamine because they've been, you know, falsely producing it for so long. So they don't have any natural production of it going on. So they're in a funk. Um, These things can haunt us in recovery is the point I'm trying to get to here slowly. Like, and it doesn't always have to be right away. Like maybe we do notice some depression as soon as we get clean or sober, but maybe later on that can come back to haunt us too. And 
I bring that up because this week uh, there was a guy who just celebrated 18 years earlier this year. Um, and and he, he used again in September. And then I just got word Thursday that he's, he's no longer with us. Right. And look, this isn't a guy that I was best friends with by any means. We, we never like called each other on a daily basis or, or really hung out like that. Um, but there are a couple of times throughout our recoveries where we had a mutual close friend for whatever reason. I, and that's always a weird concept to me, right? <laughs> like me and you can have a best friend at different points in time. And yet me and you don't ever really <laughs> click like that. I don't know how that works, but I do remember sharing some, some evenings with this guy, right? Like we went out as, as groups of three or four and, and we had some meals together and we shared some laughs and he always came across as a really genuine guy, right? I, I did like that about him. I never disliked him. I just never had a real close connection, but he did. He was always really genuine and down to earth. And so like what happened, right? 18 mm. fucking years, Billy. Like that's a long time. Yeah. To, and it scares the shit out of me. It's a good reminder, I think, for like I don't ever have this under control. But does does depression come back and isolation and you don't have that plan in place or, or the people around to help you navigate it? Like what kind of things do that to us, man? That's yeah. scary. Well, I and I don't know specifically about depression, uh, but one of the things I've learned about, like, it's getting a little sciencey, but how the brain works and stuff is that when you're going through like emotional pain, it triggers the same centers in your brain as physical pain. So if you were looking at brain imaging, when you're going through an emotional issue, when you say, oh, I'm emotionally hurt, you know, that's the same things in your brain as being physically hurt as breaking your arm. Mm. So you you know, you would think you treat those things in the same way with the same drugs, you know, right. like, like when I am physically hurt, the doctors give me, you know, pain meds, yeah, pain meds, <laughs> uh, narcotics, you, you know, so when I'm emotionally hurt, if the emotional pain is great enough, I want to take narcotics, you know, right. and the, the drive to alleviate that pain, you know, becomes great enough. Mm. Um, you know, I, saw a friend that had 17 years in recovery who I was very close to and went through a divorce. Um, and he ended up relapsing and he didn't die, but you know, it was like here was someone who I had admired and looked up to. And then they were, you know, in jail for the second or third time with DUIs. And you just think, how does that happen? Like, um, I don't know. I, I often say like it's one bad decision. Um, but I don't know if it really is just one bad. I mean, maybe it mm. is, maybe it isn't, you know, but those are the reasons for me personally, why I have always had a healthy fear of drifting too far away from my recovery supports, um, right. from things like going to meetings and keeping in touch with people in recovery and, and those things. Um, because I've also witnessed, you know, people get into emotionally difficult spots and not have the tools to deal with it and decide that using is a good option. I mean, um, similar to what you said, I don't think that healthy people use a lot of times, not like addicts anyway. Right. Um, I think for most of us, that drive to use, at least in that addictive way, is 
to alleviate pain. We don't like the way we're feeling. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we can instantly fix that (laughs) with a drink or a drug. And, and, you know, if we don't have tools to deal with those emotions, man, they'll get us. It's really tough. And you mentioned the guy was 17 years. This isn't like a, a a pissing contest in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Just reminded me of another guy. Um, and him, excuse me, him and his wife, both had 30 years. They were from the, the Baltimore area. Um, and I don't think he ever actually used, uh, I think he had like 32 or 33. He didn't use, I don't believe, but he ended up doing some really like shame inducing behaviors in recovery. Um, and due to some of those behaviors, him and his wife had a split and she went through a painful time and she, with her 30 plus years used, right. And I don't think ever could get another day. And that's just incredible to me. 30, right? 30 years. Uh, And look, I've been conditioned. I've seen so many new people walk in the door, come to a meeting, come to meetings for a week, a month, a year, whatever it may be. And then they're no longer with us for whatever reason. Maybe they finished their probation and they don't need NA anymore or whatever it is. Uh, Many guys that I've sponsored for different periods of time, Whatever it is, I've seen that so many times that I'm pretty cold to it. I don't know what the word would really be. I just, it doesn't affect me the same way it did the first couple times, right? Um, But the people with a lot of time, and I've seen a lot of double digit time go out 10, 15, 14, whatever. It's like, wow, man, that's really intense. And it's, it's not surprising in the sense that I get it. Like I know that's what we can we're capable of when we don't practice this on a daily basis, but it's still terrifying in the sense that I don't expect those people to get high yeah. anymore, right? I expect that they've got 14 years of a different <clears throat> pattern of behavior and, and that's not gonna happen. Uh and one of the things when I posted it on Twitter this week about the guy, and I wasn't, you know, trying to claim to be his best friend or anything like that, but just how eye-opening it is once again that like i can't stay clean on yesterday's shower if i took a shower yesterday and i go out and play in the fucking mud today i'm gonna be dirty right same with my recovery i can't go to a meeting yesterday and then go out and forget the things i need to do for my spiritual condition today and think i'm gonna be all right like eventually i will not be all right yeah and we i think as a society or whatever seem to have this belief that um there is what i would call a normal or a regular Mm. within people and it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about in the beginning with depression um and i think it's the same with addiction like i think people are unique in in everybody's a little bit different you know, addicts. I mean, me personally, I'll just be honest and say, I think there are levels to addiction. I think there are people that are way, you know, harder addicts than other addicts. And I don't say it as a good or bad. I mean, as some kind of judgment thing, Mm -hmm. but what I mean is the amount of pain and suffering and emotional instability in the person that drives them to use is more intense for whatever reason, whether it's their brain is, you know, chemically different. Well, like you talked about with the dopamine receptors or whatever, like there isn't just a, everybody's brain does this so that we get enough dopamine. No, there right. isn't a regular. Everyone is different. If you studied a hundred people, you'd get, you know, 
varying levels, even within quote unquote normal people, there would be these varying levels of how much dopamine they need and how much they produce and, you know, all those things. So there isn't just this normal level that if we do these things, we're going to be at this normal level, you know? And it's the same with recovery. Like um, our emotional development, our emotional growth, uh, the amount of uh, emotional uh, stability that we have is very different. You know, the issues that I suffered uh, with my abuse and and the things that drove me to use are completely different than your experience and what drove you to use. So why would we think that if we just do the exact same thing, we should be in the exact same place with the exact amount of time clean? Like it just right. doesn't work that way. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you bring up some interesting stuff. Uh, I think our program likes to say some are sicker than others. Yeah. Uh, and and <clears throat> it's a growing belief in the mental health field that everything is on some sort of spectrum of, you know, low to high or, or greater to lesser or whatever. It's, there's no two people are s- still alike. I think it used to be shared, <clears throat> and I haven't heard it for quite a while, it used to be shared more... Uh, if you try to work my program, it'll get you high or something like that. We used to say that all the time. Right. And basically trying to say that we each need to do what we each need to do differently to ensure that we're okay. Um, Some people right now, my life uh, is one meeting a week for me. It's my home group. It's not ideal. I don't particularly find it to be great. I like hitting more than one a week. Um, but I have a lot of other responsibilities and commitments in my life. And I'm not trying to make excuses for that. I have five kids. I have a uh, school. I am working a couple nights of the week right now. I can only give so much. Now that doesn't mean I don't do anything the other six days of the week for my recovery. I do a whole fuck ton for my recovery. Right. Um, probably still not as much as I'd like to do at any given point in time, but I, I, I do a lot of things, but if, other people went to meetings one day a week that might not work for their life. They might be high already. Right. Whereas if I tried to go to meetings seven days a week, which is perfect for some people right now, I would probably feel the shame of not taking care of my home life. And I would get right. So no two programs can be alike. Uh, I do think the interesting piece that we, I think we were trying to go to a little bit with this is, so this guy had 18 years, right. And, And he was, a slightly strange character, right? He was, I'm not going to beat around the bush too much with that. Um, and that doesn't mean he was bad at all. He was very unique. Right. Uh, so what I found in my recovery, I, I got here, I got together with the people who had similar amounts of clean time as me when I first got here. And and we were like, we were buddies. We were like a group, right? We were a clique, you might want to call it a recovery network. Right. And then slowly but surely people fall off, whether that's people using, whether that's people deciding they can just do church, whether that's people deciding that they're all right now and they can drink for the rest of their lives. And that works for some people. I'm not trying to knock it. Right. I don't they don't come back and tell me about it usually. But I have seen a couple instances where people seem to be okay with that. For whatever reason, people start falling off. So if I started off with this group of eight when I got here, like, honestly, if I really look at the people that are still around, there's like one in my life. Um, and what I found is hard for me is when I had four years clean and realized I had one person in my fucking network, uh, how do I make new friends? It's hard to find other people that are in similar life situations. Um, and that's been a struggle for me, right? So, 
slowly but surely I keep attempting and keep adding people of varying degrees of closeness, right? Like everybody doesn't become my best friend, unfortunately. (laughs) I wish they did. But some people, okay, hey, I see you once a month. Some people I see you once every six months. Some people I might call you twice a week. Who the fuck knows? But okay, this guy who might be a little more unique, who had 18 years, like maybe his people fell off over time. And Mm. how do you avoid isolation? It's really hard to make new friends once you've been here a while. It's tough. Yeah, uh, that is tough. And so the guy that I was close with was my, he was my best friend. We spent years of time together, hanging out together on a regular basis. And I'm not a person that typically has, you know, 10 really close friends or this huge network of people. Um, for a couple reasons. One, I don't like big groups of people. I don't like, I don't want to say I don't like a lot of people. I don't mean it that way. I like people <laughs> in general. I'm very social and I get along with people. But I don't like big groups and I don't like to be around a bunch of people at the same time. And, you know, like to me, it gets almost socially awkward. Like if 10 people go out to dinner, it gets just weird. You know, it's just that's just me. No, I'm I with like you. small groups, two or three people where we sit around, we can look at each other, interact. Right. You know, this is just that's the way that I interact with people. So I've always really had limited what I would consider close relationships. And it has been painful when they've ended you know, for, for some times, you know, most of the time spent addiction has separated me from those people. Um, they've decided to use, um, I think the way that we stay connected is by being consistent. Like I've been consistent in my home group that, you know, I'm there every week. I know the people that are there. I've built relationships with some of them. Um, I am lucky enough to say that I have at least two guys in my home group that I have known for over 17 years, yeah. you know, that have that's been rare. in that home group. Yeah. And, and right. to say that I have those two people plus my wife, um, plus a guy that's currently my sponsor are four people that I have in my life that have been in my life fairly close my entire recovery. Right. Which is rare, (laughs) which to to, you know, I went to the anniversary of one of those people the other day and he shared about that. He said, I it's incredibly rare that I have these relationships with these people. And it made me look at that and think, wow, that is crazy because I have sponsored a couple guys that I've gotten really close with, you know, in a couple Mm -hmm. years. And then, like you say, they use or move on or, you know, one case, you know, a a death, two cases Mm -hmm. of death. Um, you know, and then those relationships are gone and, you know, it's, it's tough sometimes to rebuild. I think I have been through times where I haven't had those relationships where it's really just been me and my wife and I've suffered as a result. Mm. So self-honesty, um, is critical in just, and getting outside of my comfort zone, you know what I mean? Doing what's uncomfortable, um, getting out being social, trying to hit some more meetings. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, it becomes a necessity. It's like going to meetings like, Oh, I don't necessarily want to go out and build these relationships, but it is critical to my spiritual and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And looking at it that way, treating it like that. Right. Right. So I had a, uh, I had a guy that I came in with and we were really close and 
for whatever reason, for like five years, him and I just didn't talk. There was some kind of animosity between us and it, and it kept us from being close to each other. And those five years were a struggle for me to realize, hey, you have like pretty much zero fucking close network, right? And how do you go about getting a network? And while you go out and you put yourself in awkward ass situations that seem like dates, right? <laughs> and try to date other dudes in recovery and, and get to know them and get vulnerable with them and tell them your deepest fucking darkest secrets and try to relate to them and it was hard and beyond the fact that it was just hard even walking through it and doing it i still am not sure that i really forged any really close bonds during that time I, and i was trying so hard and i'm just struggling to feel that connection with people right there was a couple here and there and it's like okay you we talked for a few months. It ended up not really being a close relationship, but we tried and it kept me going. But it's like, damn, what the fuck do you do when you're just struggling to relate to people? Right. And so thankfully that that one individual did come back into my life. We're still close friends today. Um, and that is a longtime friendship that I, I depend on and count on as part of my network. There's a couple other people. Uh, not super, super close. There, There is one guy I sponsored. Me and him have gotten pretty close in a short amount of time. Um, and over the past few years, we've really just gotten to like each other. I can't tell you why me and him click so well. I have no fucking clue what makes me and him click. And then me and, you know, maybe other guys that I sponsor, we have a different relationship than him and I do, which is there's nothing wrong with it. Like each guy I sponsor is a little different in my relationship. Um, but I, I don't know the the right ingredients to make relationships work or, or, or feel natural or normal. And, and okay. So I moved up here, um, away from my home uh, of, you know, my whole life and especially my whole recovery and trying to form new friendships up here has been a, a strange endeavor. And I'm, I'm thankful to call you one of them, right? Like we met and for whatever reason, we both put in the effort to go to some meetings together and hang out and it, and it's, it's blossomed. It's worked well. Uh, I, I love it. And I'm, but I can't say why this did and all the other times I've tried haven't. I don't have that reason. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know either. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, it's like flavors of ice cream. You just have ones you like and you just have ones you don't. And right. But we've all had those conversations with people where you start to have a conversation and think, wow, we are very different people. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we really don't think a lot of like at all. And right. then there are other people that you talk to, you know, that you just hit it off. I mean, I sponsored uh, one of the guys that passed away that was I was really close to and he died clean. Um, but it was a guy that I sponsored. And for years, I didn't sponsor him. But I, could, I was like, why didn't he fucking ask me to sponsor him? Like, we got along so well. We were really good friends. And we just, we we thought a lot alike. And we viewed the world a lot alike. And on things that we didn't, we just, you know, I don't know. It was just, it was a natural chemistry. I guess just like it would be with a woman. Right. <laughs> you know, same kind of thing. Him and I just really got along well. And, uh, you know, it was he's one of the few people that when he passed like that hurt a lot, you know, mm. we were really, really like, I just felt like we connected in a really deep and meaningful way. And, uh, I still think about him a lot, you know, more so than a lot of other people that I've known in recovery that have passed. Right. Um, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it matters. You know, <laughs> It's just interesting. Like we mm. just be grateful for the opportunities um, but one thing's for sure, if we close ourselves up at home and don't get out and try to meet people, we won't find 
people that we connect with, you know, that there are definitely true. ways we can set ourselves, you know, back and right. not, not put ourselves in position for those people to be in our lives. Right. No. And I, and I do the same thing, uh, with still trying, like I go to my home group and I, I haven't found, I don't want to say I haven't found any good relationships. That's definitely not true. Like I've definitely formed some relationships with some of the guys in my home group. Um, and just some people that attend that meeting in general and they're cool. I just don't get that deeper, like, Hey, let's go do something on Wednesday kind of feeling from them or me. Right. Like, it's not like they're reaching out or I'm reaching out for, to do more. And I, I, I don't know why that is. I mean, I just keep showing up and hoping a part of me wonders, maybe there's not, uh, maybe I don't have room for 20 good friends. Maybe if I met 18 other people that, you know, are in the same, I feel the same about as I do you or, or, or the guy I sponsor or my buddy in Baltimore. Like maybe if I met 18 others, I would just have this life that was way too fucking full and I stressed <laughs> right. about, right? right? Maybe I only have space for so much of that. I, I don't know. Uh, it's a really <clears throat> interesting idea to think about. Um, I, I don't have the answers about it. I do just keep putting myself out there and trying, right? I keep trying to be vulnerable. I keep trying to be, I think that's where I relate to people most. Uh, I used to say I hate surfacey conversations. It's not so much that I hate the surfacey conversations. I just like to be able to take it to somewhere where it's like, I feel more authentic and real about it. Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned uh, you don't dislike a lot of people. I don't dislike a lot of people, but I do dislike a lot of people's opinions about shit. I do notice that about myself. Uh, I'm pretty, and, and I love hearing like that's for me is oh, I could sit in a room and just watch people talk and enter, just the way people do things <laughs> and the differences of people fascinate me. But you said something, you know, I was thinking of uh, the thing with relationships is that they take work to oh, maintain. Absolutely. And like, I think now, like my, so my sponsor is someone that I've known for a really long time. I actually, we were locked up in jail together when we were both still using. Wow. Um, I knew him from some mutual friends. Then we were in jail together and, you know, whatever. And so when I came into recovery, he was here and had a couple months clean. Um, he wasn't my sponsor for a long time. But in any case, um, throughout this process of recovery, we've been a lot closer at times than we are right now for different reasons. Right. Um, one, he kind of moved. He's a little further away now. Some things in his life have changed. You know, he's not as available. I don't see him as much. Um, so our relationship isn't what it was two or three or five years ago. You know, it's just different. Right. And I don't know that he's changed a whole lot or I've changed a whole lot. But uh, our between the two of us, our commitment to that relationship has waned mm. um, for whatever, like I say, it's, and, and I don't look at it as start to make judgments on him or myself. Right. You know, it's just, it's a consequence of life. He has things going on. He has, you know, a relationship and kids and a house and a business. And I have a relationship and kids and work and things I'm doing. Mm. And that's just part of life, you know, and, and adjusting to that relationship you know, accepting it for what it is because we're not willing to put the work into it. <laughs> you know, right. It's just the honest, you know, the honest thing there. And I've had same with guys I've sponsored, you know, I've sponsored guys where at times they've been all into the work and we've been really close and we, I've felt really close with them. And then, you know, whatever, they get busy with life and things happen and that relationship drifts apart. And I try to not 
place judgments on that. Like that's just life. You know, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, when we moved from the city out here to Cecil County, I grew up in Baltimore city, moved out here to Cecil County when I was like 12, my whole world changed, mm. you know, changing in, in relationships is part of life. Um, I think it's rare that people maintain relationships over 15, 20, 30 years. I don't think that's all that normal. Maybe I'm wrong, but do your parents have relationships with friends that they've known for 30 years other than family members? So, uh, yeah, actually, I think my, I do have a weirdo mom who still kind of has some <laughs> friends. Um, so it was more when my father was alive, they had a group of couples friends um, that they've known since they were younger. And I think that was their big thing was to get together, listen to older music, reminisce about when they were younger. Um, since he's passed, I don't know that my mother is still as close to them. Uh, kind of in a similar manner to what you're talking about. Relationships do take work, right? And you brought up a lot of points to me. I have some other individuals. We had kind of a pretty tight little men's group in my old sponsorship family. My sponsor, my grand sponsor, a couple other guys that weren't really in that network. But we used to go out once a week. Every Saturday, we would travel to a meeting, right? Somewhere within half an hour to an hour and 15 minutes away from us, we'd all meet up. We'd get a coffee. And we'd hit the road, we'd hit a meeting, we'd get something to eat. And during that time period where I saw those guys once a week, we were really close, right? And I wouldn't say we're we're necessarily not close now. Like if I saw them, I these are guys I could still tell anything about my life, no matter how shameful or awkward it felt, right? Um, so we still have that level of comfortability and, and, and closeness in that aspect. We just don't talk on as much of a regular basis, right? When you see somebody face-to-face for like four hours, five hours, once a week, you have a slight more familiarity than you do when you text a couple times a week, right? Um, And and have the occasional phone call. And that's kind of where I'm at with that group of guys. I love them, right? And I know they love me. It's just not, we don't have the exposure to each other. And it kind of, when you were talking about that, I thought about those guys uh, and, and how, how weird relationships are like that. Do they take work? Yes. Is it a judgment that we're not all putting that work in every week? Like, could we make two phone calls a week with each other with any of those dudes? Sure. We could, none of us do. Right. And it brings me back to this concept I heard early on in recovery that like people are part of our lives for a reason, a season or a lifetime. Right. And we don't really always know why or get to choose which one of those it is. Um, there's people who come into your life just for a a simple purpose to teach you one lesson in life, say, um, or maybe you teach them one lesson. And then there's people that come in for a certain time period, whether that be literally like three months season or maybe a few years of your life. Uh, and then there's people that you will have for the rest of your life that are always going to be there. And I think that's an interesting concept. Just, I think it helps if I can accept that into the not judging part you were getting at, right? It's not that I love these guys in Baltimore any less. It's not that they feel any less care for me. It's just that maybe it's not our season right now. Maybe we'll have another season. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just remain, you know, people who really respect and care for each other from a slight distance. Uh, Maybe I move back to Baltimore. Who the fuck knows, right? But just to not judge it as oh, I'm not putting in the work. They're not putting in the work. None of us care enough. It's not really that. It's just there's only so much space and, and, and we got to accept 
almost in a third step way, like what's sent our way, right? I need to be the the leaf that I drop in the stream and just kind of go where I'm taken instead of fighting against it. Yeah. And that's part of, uh, you know, I like the leaf analogy because life is ever changing, you know, Mm. people come in and out of our lives for all kinds of reasons, you know, some good, some bad, you know, some our own choices, some not our choices. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just being open to receive love and build relationships when they become available, you know, when when the opportunity comes up. I mean, the case where we met each other, I had just we had just come back from being off the road traveling for a long time. Um, during that period, I had been really absent of relationships in my life and I had struggled Um in essence, I had room for a friend. You know? <laughs> right. I had a friendship void, you know, right. but I had energy and, and time and stuff to dedicate to that at the time because I didn't have any other relationships with people that I was hanging out with or going to meetings with or whatever. And, uh, you know, just being open and receptive to that and what happens, happens. And that's one of the things I appreciate because I, I do find that sometimes I can... And I don't even know if it's true or not, but I will just get the feeling that I'm putting more into something than other people are. And that turns me off. Right. I, I want to feel cared and concerned for and, and like people are interested in spending time with me. And when I did reach out to you, it was weird. You were just moving back here. I was just kind of moving up here from a different area and really didn't have a whole lot of you know, contacts or relationships. And I felt like when I reached out, you showed interest. Right. It was like, hey you want to, you know, go to a meeting this Thursday or something? And you were like, yeah, yeah, fuck it. Let's do that. Right. And it was like, that's cool. I I really felt that. So the more I learn about you, that's the kind of stuff I like that you are uh, often present and aware of what's going on in that kind of sense. Right. Like uh, you were just open to the fact that, Hey, this is coming towards me. It's, it's what life is presenting to me. Right. It's like, it's like if somebody put a hamburger in front of me and I, you know, smacked it off the fucking table and said, where's my spaghetti? Right. Like <laughs> I'm hungry. Uh, why don't I take the cheeseburger? Obviously not if I don't eat meat, but I'm just saying like, why don't I take what's given to me and, and see what happens with that? Maybe there's a purpose for it. And I, I like that when I can, I like when I can live that way. So seeing it in you like inspires me to try to be more in tune with that. Thank you. I'm, Part of that was the empathy. So when we were traveling around uh, the country, I w- we would go to different areas and I would pop into meetings. And, you know, it's it's weird being someone that has, you know, a lot of years clean mm-hmm. and then going into new meetings and introducing yourself as new. But then kind of that ego thing of wanting <laughs> to be like, but I'm not the fucking new, new guy. Like, right. It's me here. I've worked all the steps and I sponsor them all this, you know. <laughs> And how do you do that without coming off, you know, like a douchebag? And, you know, it's just just so weird. And and I'm socially awkward with new situations where I know no one anyway. Mm. And similar, like I felt like there were times and opportunities where I would kind of reach out to people, which in those moments, 
seemed like monumental efforts yes. for me to try to reach out, whether it was to hang out outside of the meeting where I fucking knew nobody and right. didn't smoke, you know, <laughs> and still just standing out there like, Hey, how's it going? Right. And then nobody talks to you any, you know, after that and you stand there for 10 minutes and then turn around and get back in your car right. um, to have those moments and to recognize how awkward and difficult that was. And, you know, then to recognize that in others and be like, yes, I know what that feels like and it's not good. And so I want to do what I can so that other people don't have to feel that way. Like that's that uh, principle of empathy that I learned in recovery that I can now take into deeper areas of my life. You know, I can empathize with the addict who's out there on the street making bad decisions, you know, so I can empathize in these other areas of my life as well. It's so funny to me. I'm sitting here and, and and I'm listening to you, but while you're talking, I'm also thinking that like, I think we think so much alike, right? I just have this belief for whatever reason <laughs> that we think so much alike. And I was thinking of how we actually met. I happened to look on the local uh, recovery app and your home group is not far from where I live. It's pretty close, right? Even though it's a weird late kind of time on a Thursday. I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'll check it out one week. And I think I actually didn't do that for a couple of weeks anyway, even after I said I was going to, and then I finally did. But just to me, the way it all lined up perfectly here, you are coming back from being away here. I am moving up here thinking I need, uh, you know, some friends up here. Uh, oh, I'm going to go to this meeting that just happens to be close to my house. Oh, that happens to be where your home group's been mm -hmm. for like 18 years. Like I couldn't have orchestrated this better if I was God. Right. And I just, I look at that and I'm like, man, fucking God works in mysterious ways. Right. <laughs> he just planned all this shit out to line up so perfectly in order for us to be where we're at today. And I know that your belief is that that's probably not the case so much that God really doesn't orchestrate things in that manner. And it just, it makes me laugh and, and kind of, I don't know. I think it's hilarious. Honestly. And it's funny because I was thinking about that with something else we were talking about earlier. So it's similar, but from a different perspective. So my perspective on that God's will thing is that by me practicing that principle of empathy, I am carrying out God's will in my life. Right. Like that is me serving God's will, being that humble servant. And um, practicing the principle of commitment by showing up at your home group right. when you just move back to the area. And so by practicing those principles, I am, if you choose to call it God's will, if you like to use those words, right. you know, that is the, the application of those principles is living out God's will for me. So when people talk to me about, you know, God's will, not mine be done, you know, what that means isn't these things happen and it's not what I wanted to happen in my life. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but so many times people say, Oh, I got fired from this job. Oh, it must be God's will. Like, I don't think that's how that works. I, I totally do. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's not how God's, if you're using the words, God's will, that's not how, what God's will is that me showing up and living spiritual principles to the best of my ability in spite of any situation. Right. Like that's as, it's a different application of the same idea. <laughs> it's hilarious. So uh, the book I'm actually listening to right now, Conversations with God, which has been recommended to me for fucking ever. My wife loves it. it. She recommended it to me as well. Well, I will tell you that <laughs> listening to it, uh, this conversation this guy has with God, God's answers are much more in tune with what you're saying. So you might want to read it. It will <laughs> definitely agree with you, right? I, it doesn't personally agree with me in that sense, but I, I still find it really intriguing and interesting. Um, 
I think anything I do to try to seek spiritual growth, recovery, whatever you want to call it, the more of that I fucking do, man, the better of a place I'm in, mm-hmm. in my head. Uh, and just this last week, noticing the depression, I've really put a lot of effort into doing some positive things, listening to, you know, positive audio books, more prayer, more meditation, things that are good for me. I'm trying to, you know, I've listened to another audiobook, Radical Compassion, where they're they're talking about this process of rain, where I just recognize my feelings and allow them to be, and then eventually investigate them and nurture them and things like that. And I'm just like full force into fucking I need help, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in that in that space, I really think that I've been a much more aware and nicer parent mm. this whole week. Not perfectly. Right. Not perfectly whatsoever. Still some grumpiness, but at least at moments, the ability to say, hey, I'm uh, I'm grumpy right now. And maybe this isn't the time for us to have this conversation. Right. And it's just it's kind of blowing my mind. It's like, fuck, man, I, I like me better this way for sure. So maybe I need to put this effort in all the damn time. Yeah. And why don't I? <laughs> and it's interesting. So I remember hearing a conversation uh principle that I've learned in recovery is, you know, that thing where if I don't feel like I'm getting enough love, like let's say in my marriage relationship, I don't need to do things to try to seek more love. I need to give more love. Mm. I need to be more loving and more nurturing and more compassionate in my relationship. And by doing it, I recognize it and then receive it, you know, because a lot of times those things are there. It's just not in the way that I want it or not in the way that I'm open to it in that moment. Right. My thing is, well, if you loved me, you would fucking whatever, cook dinner when I get home from work or make sure, you know, my clothes are all put away, you know, whatever dumb thing that I think love means in that moment. Text me back when I text you. Right. Immediately, you know, (laughs) immediately reply to my needs. At least answer my shit at some point. Whereas, you know, a lot of times that love is coming in other ways. And as I, you know, as I begin to become more loving, I open myself up to that principle of love and I can receive it better. That's hilarious because I definitely miss out on on some of the love that's sent my way from my family. Because I'm like, if you loved me, you would think about me in your decision making <laughs> yeah, right. process. I'm like, no, they right. fucking will. I don't think about people in my decisions a lot of times. Right. I don't know. Uh I don't know. You got any more to talk about today? I think we've covered some really good stuff. Yeah, I think it was a very good podcast. I like it. Awesome. Uh, Well, in that case, we will uh, be back again next week. Don't forget that if you enjoy the podcast and you think it's useful and helpful for your life, and maybe you know other people that listen to podcasts, turn them on to it and see if they'll be useful and helpful. And uh, hopefully we can have a great conversation about this and all, you know, keep doing this recovery thing together. Yeah. And we hope to have the podcast, uh, open to not just people in recovery, but maybe family members or other people that struggle with spiritual living or mental health. Um, So we want to keep our conversations uh, open to those topics as well. All right. Talk to you soon. That wraps up this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred platform. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to talk about or just want to add an opinion, contact us through Anchor. Email us at recoverysortof at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at recoverysortof.